Blog Talk Radio. This is the Sunbury Press Author's Interview. I'm Van Carter. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing a trio of collaborators who have worked on several books together, almost all of them related to finding and uh, putting some details to the graves of our forebears. And now they've decided to put the focus on the founders of these United States. This book is the first of a planned four volumes titled Graves of Our Founders, Their Lives, Contributions, and Burial Sites. The authors are Joe Farrell, Joe Farley, and Lawrence Knorr, himself also the publisher of Sunbury Press. I've talked before with Mr. Knorr and Mr. Farley, but never before with Joe Farrell. Everyone, feel free to jump into this free-for-all, but let's start with Mr. Farrell. Joe, tell us about yeah. your project. Well, um, we, we, we wrote a, ser- a whole series of books about famous people buried in Pennsylvania called Keystone Tombstones. And then we uh, did a, another series of uh, famous people buried in the New York metropolitan area, and we called that Gotham Graves. And in our travels visiting the graves, we got the idea of doing founders, especially in light of the um, quincentennial, the 250th anniversary of the founding of our country coming up in 2026. We thought this might be a good idea. We could uh, visit the graves of all of our founders and write a few volumes uh, uh, with their mini bio- biographies in there. And so that's what we set out to do, and that's what we've done. We've visited all but about how many, Larry, 10 or 12 uh, left yeah, to the go. Yeah. And, um, and we established a website. We put their biographies on the website. We visited their graves. We raided their graves. We have found uh, uh, a very disturbing situation where a, a large number of Founders' graves are in terrible shape, in terrible situations. They're forgotten and deteriorated and unmarked and lost. And uh, we're some of them are flat about. missing. Yeah, so we're uh, we're upset about that, and we're trying to do something about it. We're trying to get attention. And, uh, uh, we're cooperating with the, the National Commission um, that's been established by Congress to uh, to um, celebrate the 250th birthday of our nation and uh, we've been in contact with that organization and they're interested in our project and we're moving forward uh, and putting out this first volume is big because I think it, uh, it gives, gives a concrete matter to the idea of what we're proposing to write and what we're finding along the way. Anybody? <laughs> I was going to say, what? just head on. You know, one of the one of the questions that we're asked was, well, who's a founder, and how many founders are you dealing with, and why is it four volumes? And it, it turns out we're we're talking about over 200 individuals, about 50, 51, 52 per volume, and that's a lot of graves, and they're spread out over 15 or 16 different states. 
and so it's been quite a bit of travel. So we've we've gone everywhere from Maine to uh, to Missouri to see these things. And of course, most of them are in the original 13 colonies. But uh, yeah, it's been quite an adventure and quite a quite a list to check off. Some very interesting people, many that are you know world famous, and then others that you've never heard of. Yes, yes, definitely. Some of them I had never heard of, and and I was extremely surprised. And uh, and yet the ones that I hadn't heard of, a couple of them. Who am I thinking of here? There's one in particular, Joseph Warren. Uh, I had never heard of Joseph Warren, and it turns out that uh, that the the British had a vitriolic hatred of him because of all of the things he had done uh, uh, toward independence. Yeah, he was, yeah, he well, was a I, real firebrand. Yeah. Go ahead. You're making a point, aren't you? Yeah, that was that was one of the guys I wrote about, and uh, they they said if if he had lived, there would be no President Washington. It would have been President Warren. He was a very charismatic young man. Uh, they wanted him to lead militarily. He he was uh, very humble about that. And said, "No, I'll serve as a private." but I'll, I'll fight on Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill. And uh, very early on in the revolution, of course, he's up there doing that, and he's killed. And not only is he killed, <laughs> but uh, totally just they, they attack his body. It's really. I mean, it was it was it was done. it was extremely graphic. What what they did they did terrible things to his body, and then and then some guy even went back later and uncovered him again to spit on it. It was crazy. Yep, dug him up. Yeah, it was. And, so he uh, he, well, he's he was definitely very, getting under the skin of the British. That's for sure. <laughs> he's got a got a very nice memorial in Boston with a with a bronze statue, and he's he's well remembered. So he's one that even though he was not very well liked or taken care of by the British, he he certainly uh, certainly you know those around Boston have taken good care of him. Now I'm just curious. Did you other, guys travel? The other part did, of this, I'm sorry. The other part of this project is to bring to light the uh, contributions and achievements of men like Warren, men that have largely been forgotten yeah. uh, over the years. In addition to, uh, in addition to bringing attention to the problem with some of the graves, uh, we're attempting to um, educate, I guess, uh, the entire populace, but in, in particular, young people about uh, these these uh, gentlemen, largely gentlemen, although there, there are women, in, of course, in the, in the volumes as well, uh, that basically contributed so much to the establishment of this country. So it's an educational process as well. Definitely, definitely. I mean, there were there were a lot of things that, that I just don't... Uh, well, well, we'll get to all of the things, because I've got a lot of questions about some of the things I had no idea about. But first of all, uh, when when you... When you went to these places, was it was it a? Uh, did you go individually? Did you take road trips together? How how'd you work that? Yeah, road trips oh. together, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah, there were a couple where where maybe one of us was in in town for a reason and, and did that, but collectively we've been to them all. I'd say most of them, all three of us have been to. Yeah. Well, if you spent that much time together, it must just be more than professional. You guys must like each other. Yeah, we some of us have <laughs> We've gotten used to each other's idiosyncrasies. Let's just say. Well, one of the things, 
now did you all see this? I'm curious about this one place where you went to and you couldn't get to the grave because it was on private property. Was there? I wish you had taken a picture of this alleged sign that said uh, there will be gunshots if there is even dust in the driveway. Really? Yeah, that was one of the leaves, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. 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 That was uh, Lightfoot Lee. That was right. the tail of plantation. The grave. So that meant you can't even go knock on the door, huh? Well, there were well, dogs well, out, uh, out of the truck because there were dogs right. all over the place. Yeah. Oh, really? I know, Farrell. You want to tell yeah. a story? <laughs> no, why are you telling? <laughs> well, so yeah, we we uh, on that trip we took my pickup truck, so uh, we were we were in an appropriate vehicle for rural Virginia, and it was a dirt road. So uh, we go down this dirt lane, which goes into this this plantation, and uh, it at one time had been like a bed and breakfast, or had invited the public in, but. Obviously, in at least 10, 20 years, it hadn't. It was somewhat overgrown. And we first pulled in the driveway, and we're like, well, there's no fence or gate or anything. So, and it used to be open to the public. Nobody's answering the phone number. And there was this sign about warning us off that, you know, dust in the driveway would result in gunshots. I can tell you and exactly thought, what the sign said. The sign said, drive slowly, dust um, encourages gunfire. Yeah, track that's uh, okay. right. <laughs> so we drove slowly and we thought, all right, a lot of these plantations there's there's always like a family plot somewhere within a hundred yards of the house and we might see it and be able to hop out and get the picture and we find as we pull up into this ramshackle old southern plantation we're being followed by dogs of various breeds and, and uh, cleanliness and thinking maybe we shouldn't step out of this truck. So we uh, <laughs> we went in and looked around and turned around and came back out and we we just chalked it up to uh, a failure and thought we'd, we'd try to get a hold of somebody at some point in the future. But there was no signage or obvious maintenance there of the uh, of the historic nature of the graves. Well, to your earlier point, Joe, talking about uh, uh, d- deciding who might be and who might not be a founder, and because you've kind of come up with something original here, I'm not sure how many people have have made a true founders list, but I'm I'm really glad that you included some women. Uh, you called you know you you called them thought leaders, and they definitely had an influence upon what was going on. Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton and Abigail Ham- Adams, and I, I just wish there had been more of them. Yeah, I you know I, I would agree with you. I mean, in terms of uh, Hamilton's cases, his wife supported him throughout his career, uh, aided him in in. Uh, in writing, and then after uh, he was killed in the duel with Aaron Burr, she spent the rest of her life uh, basically uh, putting together his papers and uh, um, and and things that would contribute to his legacy. And, and she contributed quite greatly to to his renown after um, after his death. And I know Joe, you read about Abigail Gail Adams, right? Yes. I wrote about Abigail Adams, who was a you know a huge inspiration to John, her husband, and uh, was quite a force when he, uh, he was president. And while she was in Washington, she was uh, it got interested in more than just being the president's wife. She was interested in a lot of 
policies and promoting women's rights and uh, <clears throat> warning men <laughs> that if they didn't treat women more respectfully or with respect or with equal uh, 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 rights, that uh, there would be a price to pay. She was definitely uh, a also, feminist and a suffragist. Well, yes. Also in volume one of the Graves of Our Founders, uh, there's the story of Deborah Sampson Gannett, who actually fought. She was the uh, yes. She actually disguised herself as a as a man right. and fought for 17 months in the revolution. Was wounded, and finally it was discovered that she was a woman, and uh, that was reported all the way up to George Washington, who ordered her to be uh, who ordered her to be uh, honorably discharged. And uh, granted a pension. Yeah, they gave uh, her a she, pension. Yeah, so uh, yeah, they were, she did. She did. You know, contributed quite a bit, but she had to disguise herself as a man. Let me ask a few questions that 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 uh, of things that I had no idea about, and, and maybe you can flesh them out for me. Uh, uh, first of all. Uh, there, they, they, there were several references to uh, uh, men who had who were officers in the Continental Army or whatever, who then went back home and resigned and, and sold their commissions. I don't know about how how does that work? Selling? How do you sell your commission? Yeah, I'll take that. So back in those times, it was a it was a right or privilege that they owned, and once they owned it, they could. They could. It had economic value, so they could hand it off to another for a price. So, it so someone uh, else could come like in who had the money. So, yeah. so a major could sell his commission, and some other, some somebody with the money could could buy it from him, and then become the major. Right, thinking that usually those things were for the nobility, um, you know, in the British army, and uh, that's how it was handled. Now, I think you're talking about Horatio Gates did something like that back when he was in the British Army. Oh, so so that would be that would be the the British ranks that were sold. Yes, I'm not aware of the American Army of that practice occurring. I, I know that a lot of the leaders were elected by their by their um, communities. So you know they'd be in the local militia and they'd elect the officer. But in the British Army, you could sell your commission. I, I, you know, I, I don't think I realized before this book uh, how much. Uh, uh, I mean, there was a, there was a lot of uh, marrying of cousins and things like that. I, I don't think I realized how how uh, <laughs> interlaced uh, everybody was, and most almost it seemed to me that mo- almost all of the the founders uh, uh, turned out to, almost all at least turned out to be from uh, starting from wealth and privilege to begin with. And uh, I think, and that, yeah, I think by and large that's true. Alexander Hamilton stands out as an exception. He does. To that rule. He does. Um, you know, in that he he was an immigrant as well, in that he was born in the West Indies, uh, which is one of the things that uh, attracted uh, um, who I don't forget who the gentleman's name is that wrote the Broadway uh, uh, play and the score for Hamilton. But one of the things that attracted him to Hamilton was the fact he was an immigrant. 
He was essentially a, a poor orphan kid who was just brighter than hell, and, and people kept recognizing it and gave him a shot in America. And uh, you talk about meritocracy. Yeah. Yeah, and he made the most of that shot. There's no doubt about that. Well, Van, one of the, things the other thing that – go ahead. Uh, one of the things that I have, we have talked about, actually, um, is, is I'm amazed that so many who had so much, like you said, lots of these guys were rich and living very well. And I'm surprised that they were willing to risk everything for the cause. Um, it's very impressive to me. I, I'm, I'm a little shocked by it, actually, that, that so many uh, really rich men – were willing to risk everything. Oh yes, there, there was a one gentleman who who uh, almost well, maybe he did. He bankrupted himself, uh, continuing to make ammunition and and cannons and things like that for the cause. Yes, I mean, he paid with his yes. own money till he had none. It's it's, it's just amazing. It's, we've been to some fantastic homes of some of these um, men, like Livingston in upstate New York living on the Hudson River in a big mansion, and he was willing to risk it all, you know, signing the Declaration of Independence. And they took, and the British came and got it and burned his place. I mean, many of them had their places burned, confiscated, destroyed. And, and it's just amazing that you got, you know, that, that rich, well-off men would do this. Well, there were <laughs> 55 frankly, of them. There were 55 of them that, that signed that Declaration of Independence, knowing while they while they were doing so that that they were establishing a death warrant from the British. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, ben Franklin had said, "We got to hang together, or we will hang individually," and uh, he's <laughs> referring to that. They were all traitors to uh, to the crown at that point. Something else I didn't know, uh, uh, and, and I need a little explanation on this. Henry, Light Horse Harry Lee, went to debtor's prison in 1808. We had debtor's prisons here? Oh, yeah. Yes, we How's did. If you didn't pay your bills, you went, you went to jail. Uh, there weren't bankruptcies. So you, you couldn't just go to court and be forgiven. You, you, uh, you went to jail for a while, and... Yeah, the Lee family, at least that branch of it, fell on really hard times. And he was Robert E. Lee's father. So for a time, he was in debtor's prison. I didn't well, even so know Robert we had Morris, debtor's prisons in this country. The, oh, yeah, well, Robert Morris from Pennsylvania, who happened to be at one point the richest man in the country, ended up in the debtor's prison. Uh, Good grief. Morris had signed. Yeah, he ended up in a debtor's prison. He, had, he was considered the financer of the American Revolution. He threw loads of money. Uh, into the revolution during it, and then he got into land speculation um, after the country was established, and he lost his fortune, and he ended up in a Philadelphia debtor's prison. As a matter, as a matter of fact, Congress passed a law uh, basically to get him out of prison, uh, to basically forgive the debts so that he could get out of prison. But he spent about two and a half years uh, in debtor's prison. As a matter of fact, during the research... Uh, I found an old newspaper article that talked about how they had found uh, receipts uh, where he was paying like $2.50 a month to pay for his stay in the debtor's prison. <coughs> uh, so when did they do away with debtor's prisons? 
Well, Chase was I'm left exactly out in the sure. early 1800s, so I'm not exactly sure. But there was a law passed by Congress to uh, uh, to get him out. He paid a dollar twenty-five a week for his board for a week for his board. In 1800, Congress passed a, a temporary bankruptcy act, which allowed a number De- of people debtor. to get out of debtor's prison. Yeah, debtor's prisons went away before the Civil War, and and with the new corporate laws and such, you see the rise of big corporations and people taking risks, buying stocks and such. You, you don't see uh, the same kind of uh, treatment of failure uh, with the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the other thing that 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 uh, I found fascinating that I really just hadn't uh, internalized, I guess, was that a lot of these these rich and privileged men who were who were working for independence, etc., uh, but but most of them had inherited uh, what they had, so you know they started out wealthy. Uh, we're talking about some of these estates, and we're talking over there in in the east where you guys are. Uh, uh, estates of thousands of acres. I, I mean, I'm thinking of Texas ranches. You know, uh, it just it, it, it it's mind-boggling. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And 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 uh, and seeing some of them are, are very interesting. I mean, we went to we went to the estate of uh, it would have been his estate back in the day of William Packer from um, Maryland, um, and. Uh, it's now private property. It's owned by, but it's still an, an enormous venture. We drove through it, even though it said private property. We didn't actually get to his grave, uh, but it's a beautiful home and uh, and still many acres of property. So we believe that 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 has kind of stunned us in, in some ways as well. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, and 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 some of the names. Uh, the uh, Daniel of St. Thomas Jennifer. They sure liked the Dan- Daniel Jennifer uh, moniker, didn't they? He was a. I mean, he was an odd bird. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there were Daniels going. There were Daniels going back generations, and Daniels going down generations. Imagine doing that genealogical research and trying to figure out that family. <laughs> yeah. He he had ten. I think he had. He had thousands of acres, but he had a lot of slaves too. He was he was down in a, a town near a town called Port Tobacco, Maryland, which is right right near the Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac, and big slave uh, area where the slave trade was. And you know, his body is now lost. We're not quite sure where it is. We have an idea, and we we hope someday to go back down there with with green, ground radar and be able to help the pl- property owner at least identify where a cemetery is on the property or she won't be able to be sure about which, which grave is Jennifer's, but uh, it'll be a fun project. Uh, I was, I was mortified by the story of the, and I don't remember who it was now of the story of, uh, it was, uh, maybe it was the son who went with the two wheel cart to bring the body of his <laughs> father or whatever. Oh, back Matt Anthony. And, Matt Anthony, Matt Anthony Wayne, yeah. Yeah, and, and it wouldn't fit uh, in the cart. So, oh, my God, they, they bought, uh, I, I don't even know if I want to repeat what happened. It was horrible. <laughs> it's one of they, our uh, favorite stories, actually. Joe, you should tell it. You wrote the chapter. Please tell it. Well, they, they, when 
when uh, all he had was boxes on the back of this cart, and, and all he intended to bring back. But Joe, before phone. you tell it, why don't you tell a little bit about Matt Anthony first? This guy was an important guy. He was. Yeah, yeah. He uh, uh, he, he was one of uh, Washington's favorite generals. Washington really relied on him. He got the name Matt Anthony because he was he wanted to fight. And many of our generals, which again, this is what you don't learn, I don't think, in the way I was taught history. Many of the generals were very reluctant to take on the biggest, best equipped, best trained army on the planet uh, with a bunch of farmers, and and they were uh, reluctant to fight the British. But Matt Anthony went after the British. He wasn't afraid. He believed in the cause, and Washington knew that and relied on him um, for a while. And, and consulted with him a lot to say, you know, would you do this? Would you be willing to do this? Would you lead men to do this? And, he, he, and so he became very close to Washington. Um, many say that he would have been maybe the next president after Washington had he lived. But um, Washington sent him out west. The, the part of the agreement to end the war was that the British would uh, abandon um, forts in Ohio and out, out west. Uh, where they had, uh, where they were using the forts to stir up Indians against uh, against us and all of that, and so he uh, he sent a couple of guys first, and they failed, and so he finally asked um, Matt Anthony to uh, would you assemble uh, an army and go out and kick the British out of these forts, and he did. He went out and he kicked the British out of the forts. Yeah, on his way back, he stopped in Erie, Pennsylvania. And um, and there he uh, had a bout of uh, gout and died. And so um, uh, they buried him in Erie uh, originally. And um, and 13 years later, his family wanted his body returned to their local to their home to their home area near Philly in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And they, they wanted said, his body returned, but apparently yeah. not not his body, huh? <laughs> so, so they sent the son in in uh, in, in a wagon uh, uh, all the way up to Erie. It was a long, terrible trip on a dirt road and rut, rutted dirt road and very bouncy and all of that. And uh, when he got there, he he had contacted the doctor that served with Matt Anthony, and they because he said I I could need help doing this. I never, you know, I've never dealt with a dead body and you know could you help me and so the, the, the doctor was from Pittsburgh and he met him in Erie and they dug up the body and they were shocked that it was still like intact it's only one the bottom of one leg had been like rotted away the rest was still intact so the only thing the doctor could think of he said um it's dismembering him getting like cutting this cutting tool and and, and like cutting up and then and then, honest to God, they they put they put the they cut they chopped them up and put them in a vat like a cauldron. It's on. It's actually on display at the Erie County Museum. They call it the uh, the, the uh, cauldron, cauldron of, of death. death. Yeah, and it's and, and and they boiled his body in there and got all of the stuff off the bones. And then he took the bones and put them in the boxes on the back of his wagon. And returned to Philadelphia uh, 
uh, the and legend this, has it. And this is not Jimmy Hoffa we're talking about. This is Matt Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, it's just it's it's a macabre story. And he's so actually he's very. They put the original. They put the stuff from the cauldron, the remains, back in the original hole with the tools that they used to dismember him and dig him up. And they put those all back in the original grave and sealed it. And then they took the bones and they buried him in Wayne, Pennsylvania, in a nice, a nice appropriate grave. So he's actually buried in two places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who, who else has uh, a favorite anecdote? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm not sure it's a favorite anecdote, uh, but uh, Samuel Chase uh, who signed uh, the Declaration of Independence? He was from Maryland. He was uh, uh, he was considered a, a real hothead uh, pre-revolution. In fact, uh, uh, he uh, newspapers that were controlled by the by the British had identified him as being a firebrand, and and uh, he did not back down from that. Uh, and then he uh, was strongly supported. Uh, the, the move towards independence as a member of the Continental Congress, voted for, signed the Declaration, uh, and then later uh, became a Supreme Court justice. He was appointed by uh, President Washington to the Supreme Court. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I believe to this day is the only Supreme Court justice ever to face impeachment. Uh, because when Jefferson took over, as president, he was trying to uh, remove a lot of what were the Federalist judges, the Federalists being the opposing party, uh-huh. and he identified Chase as one, and he tried to impeach him. And Aaron Burr, actually, because he was vice president, presided over the impeachment trial, but Chase was found uh, to be innocent, and he ended up serving on the Supreme Court, I think, until he died in, like, 1811. Uh, but he's buried in a Baltimore Cemetery in downtown Baltimore that has been just left to rot. Uh, you can't get in. It's surrounded by stone walls and a locked gate. Uh, the only way we got in was they gave us the combination to the lock, and we were able to, to get in, uh, but then finding his grave was difficult, and it's worn, and um, and it's just it's a, it's a mess. It's one of the most disgraceful graves for a founder. I think that we've come across uh, it, 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 the cemetery itself was once where Francis Scott Key was buried, but his family actually moved him out of that cemetery. Uh, yeah, we consider that to be, you know, not an antidote, but certainly uh, really uh, it, 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 it's an example of the kind of things that we're trying to change uh, yeah. as part of this project. Yeah, I I am a uh, have been for several years a contributor to find a grave. So I'll go out to local cemeteries around where I live, and I'll I'll find uh, graves that have been undocumented and photograph them and things like that. And one of the things I have discovered, and I'm sure you do, you have probably noticed exactly the same thing, is that uh, as magnificent as it must have been when they first put it up, anything made of marble doesn't last at all. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you have found most of the most of the graves that are degraded, where you can almost not read them at all. They're probably marble, aren't aren't they? 
Yeah, a good, num- good number of them are. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say a good number of them are marble. Uh, some are slate. Okay. Some are granite. Uh, many have had new monuments put up or have other markers around them or other information, but quite a few don't. And uh, uh-huh. some of them are, don't, don't, don't even have a marker anymore. And, and when you, uh, you know, say like you said, when, some have been lost. When you say that you want to restore uh, or, or are hoping to be able to to restore some of these, uh, is is do you mean simply put up uh, a, a new and different marker, or try and uh, try and copy what was there and recreate something? Well, I would uh, I say think, I think we haven't. Yeah, I was going to say it's. We're we're not trying to dictate what should be done in each situation. What we're trying to do is identify those that we think are in most need of attention and then hopefully can rally uh, local people or groups or somebody to uh, to take up a cause. Because, you know, there's probably 50, 60, 70 of these out of the 200 that are really in need of attention. Uh-huh. Wow. In some cases... In some cases, perhaps relocation. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. one of them. We've we talked about relocation, yes, because they, yeah. they're they're so inaccessible that that that, that people can't get. Uh, a prime example is the guy that uh, uh, at the Continental Congress put forth the motion to make this country uh, independent. Who wrote that chapter? Lee. On, yeah, yeah I did. Richard did. Henry Lee. Well, go ahead. Tell, 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 tell about that grave. Yeah, so Richard Henry Lee, who put forth the motion for independence and uh, ultimately led to the Declaration of Independence, he's one of the Lees of Virginia and had a plantation called Burnt House Fields. The, when he died, the, the home had already burned down, but the family plot was there. So this is back in the early 1800s. They still buried people on that family plot, and they lived. Uh, the rest of the family lived nearby on other plantations. And so, for almost 200 years, this this little family plot's out in the farmer's field. And now today, the uh, you know the world's grown. Well, I guess it hasn't grown up much around them, but uh, you know the lots have been subdivided. The plantations are are gone, and and all you have is this soybean field now down a dirt road and. There's a little family plot out in the middle of it, and that's where the Lee family, at least this branch of it, is buried, Richard Henry Lee uh, being the most prominent one there. So we had to we had to drive about a mile down a dirt road and then out into this bean field, and, you know, we see this, this uh, brick-walled you know, rectangle, not very big out there, and we're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is where Richard Henry Lee uh, is and thinking that shouldn't he be in like Arlington or uh, you know some other more uh, prominent place? Well, I know yeah, many of these have statues and things. I know a lot of them, of course, have streets and towns named for them. But there there are statues of of many of these people in in various places. Does Richard Henry Lee have a statue anywhere? I guess in the halls of Congress he would have in. I don't know if he's the one, one of the ones representing Virginia. I probably shouldn't say that. Uh, Nathaniel Green is an example of somebody, you know, the great general that a lot of people have forgotten about. Uh, he, he's buried in Savannah, 
his body was moved to a big monument in the middle of the town of Savannah, Georgia. And uh, that's an example of, at some point in the past, uh, honoring somebody uh, much, much better than he was. He had just been in a, in a vault on a plantation. It it does seem that that many of it, it does it just does seem wrong. What, what is it? Was it? Uh, I, I can't remember the quote. That 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 uh, was it. A Benjamin Franklin quote about the Cicero quote. Maybe that was it. Yeah, it was the Cicero quote. Farrell knows it by heart, I think. Yes. Um, poor is the nation that having. Poor is the nation that has no heroes. Shameful, one that has them and forgets. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what we think is, you know, that's what's happening here, and that's what's uh, disturbing, at least to me, and I think to us, um, is that some of our uh, our founders who gave up everything are not being remembered, not being memorialized properly, being lost. Which is, I don't know, it's just very disturbing that that, that, that would happen or could happen. Then there's then there's a to see to see, this, to see Richard Henry Lee, the guy who stood up in the Continental <clears throat> Congress and made the motion to become independent from England, the motion that led to our founding of our country. To see him in a bean field, surrounded, honest to God, you have to. That to see this, <laughs> it's, it's just as far as you can see. There's, there's soybeans. I mean, as far as you can see, there's soybeans, and, he, and there he, and there's his grave. There's his remains, in the middle of a soybean field. You, you, you couldn't find it. I mean, it's it's really, really, really hard to find, in a very remote area of Virginia, uh, uh, accessible only on a on a dirt road. You, you, you mostly turn around before you got to get there. Can't be right. This can't be right. It's all dust flying, and, and and you know you're on a private property. You're on a soy. You're in a soybean field. Yeah, and you're thinking like uh, we got to get out of here. And, and that's where he's buried. Yeah, that's just not right. It's just not right. <laughs> Thank God we yeah. had Larry with us because Joe and I, being city guys, had no idea they were soybeans. <laughs> <laughs> so we we learned that on the trip as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think you guys you guys need to uh, probably pursue uh, some some uh, GoFundMe site on on your site or some crowdfunding or something like that to try and rectify a lot of this. It sounds like you you may have gotten yourselves into something that you weren't uh, expecting to, but uh, uh, it it is shameful some of some of what I'm hearing about these founders' graves. I was going to mention one that that's kind of an oddball where I think people went a little too far in trying to honor somebody. And that, that was a gentleman named Button Gwinnett, who was a mm-hmm. signer of the declaration. He was killed in a duel. He was a young man killed in the duel soon after the signing. And then his, uh, his grave was lost in Savannah and they wanted to put a memorial to the signers from Georgia uh, into, I forget what town it was, um, it's a town in Georgia where they have a monument. And he's named on this monument, but his body was never found and moved there. Well, it turns out in Savannah, uh, a local amateur archaeologist starts, wants to dig around and find Button Gwinnett, 
and finds some bones in a grave and insists that they're Butt and Gwinnett. And the Smithsonian takes a look at it and says, no, nah, I don't think so. I think We think it's a woman. But the, lo- the local townspeople voted that it was Button, and they decided to erect the monument over those bones. Anyway, so today when you go to Savannah, Georgia, and you go to the, the monument to Button Gwinnett downtown, uh, he may or may not be buried under that monument. Well, I also know, uh, speaking of Button Gwinnett, I, I learned that uh, that someone that is, that almost no one has heard of, and uh, uh, his grave has been lost. But but his uh, his uh, signature is rare and very valuable because he signed the declaration. Yeah, I think Farrell wrote that chapter. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of who it was. <laughs> Button Gwinnett. What was well, his signature worth? It, it's yeah. rare because he died so young, and uh, just he didn't have a lot of a lot of his papers were lost, I guess. And he's worth his signature's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars at auction if you can find one. Isn't that crazy? Probably more valuable yeah. than George Washington. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't tried to buy a Washington signature, but yeah, it's very rare. Huh. Yeah. Evidently, right. evidently, a 1979 letter signed by Gwinnett brought a hundred thousand dollars at a New York auction auction in 1979. Um, right. Yeah. And that in 2010, a document with his signature went for seven hundred and uh, seven hundred and well, what twenty two. Yeah. So, yeah. So. So I guess you could say so four yeah, guys go to try to visit. Those, the... I'd hold on to it. Poor, poor guys go to try to visit the graves and the billionaires buy the documents. Yeah. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the anecdotes that we have laughed about on on our trips is about a guy named Elbridge uh, Jerry. That's actually pronounced Gary. I found out Elbridge Gary, who uh, was a delegate to the um, to, to the Constitutional Convention, and uh, was. Um, had a lot of a lot of feelings, a lot of thoughts, and uh, wasn't afraid to express them. And spoke to the convention 153 times. <laughs> 153 times he asked to be recognized and spoke at length on the floor of the convention. And we laughed because one of the passages, one of the uh, uh, research pieces we, we were reading, I was reading, said that. There was a group of guys who every time Elbridge, Elbridge Gary was recognized, they would go to City Tavern. They would they would sneak out the back, go to City Tavern, which was right nearby, and, and drink. And they left word with a messenger to come and get them when he was done. <laughs> That's so not in the went book. To City Tavern and drank. And they waited until the messenger came. And then, and then Jerry had the, the, the unmitigated gall that at, at the end vote against the, the uh, Constitution. <laughs> he, he didn't vote for it. After addressing the convention 153 times. <laughs> he was a contrarian, evidently. Mr. Mr. Gary. And, and isn't Jerry Mandarin named after him? Isn't that right? 
Yeah, gerrymandering yeah. is is named after him, even though it should be called gerrymandering. But it's <laughs> <Okay. laughs> yeah. Well, gentlemen, I was just going to say I I I, uh, I adjured your book thoroughly. Uh, obviously, you know, there's uh, these kinds of anecdotes. Actually, there's there's anecdotes in the book, you know, throughout, uh, and and uh, you we've covered some of them and. Uh, thank you. I, it was very interesting reading. I'm good. I'm good. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope other people do as well. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your time and your book with us, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. This book is carefully indexed, and the source or bib material also includes various websites as well. You'll find the website address that the authors have created for those who'd uh, like to get involved with maintaining or actually restoring some of our founders' graves, every one of which these gentlemen have visited and have been chagrined to find some such graves very decrepit and in bad repair, as we've discussed. And I think that by defining who they think the founders were, the authors are building a fascinating tapestry of interwoven characters who, ma- many with only cursory knowledge of one another, came together for the singular purpose of securing real freedom for the common citizen and creating something new in the world. A form of government that is meeting one of its severest tests at this very moment in time, 250 years later. The authors are Joe Farrell. Lawrence Knorr, and Joe Farley. This is the first of what will become four volumes. Find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers. The book is Graves of Our Founders. It is rich with detail. This has been the author's interview. 